Today on Vitality Radio, I'm so excited to share with you some of the absolute best scientifically validated information I've ever found on what to do about blood sugar issues, including type 1 and type 2 diabetes, prediabetes, insulin resistance, and all of the things that come along with those issues. Because diabetes isn't just a thing that causes you to need a drug or two drugs to keep your blood sugar in line. It's a thing that eventually kills many, many Americans, mostly through heart disease. But on the way down, there is neuropathy. There is the problem with mood balance. There's the problem with energy balance. There's the problem with body composition and weight gain. There's the problem, of course, as I mentioned, with heart disease. There are other issues associated with this as well. So it's a big deal. Diabetes and blood sugar issues are on the rise in America, actually dramatically on the rise in America. And there are real-world, clinical, clinically proven things that help. There are things that don't have clinical evidence but make all kinds of sense uh, that can help. And there are dietary changes that can be made. Some of them really even aren't that hard. There are physical lifestyle things, including movement, that can be changed or made or improved upon that can make a big difference. And there are supplements that are extremely effective as well. I want to share all of those things with you. Today's show is a little bit of new stuff, a little bit of old stuff, some stuff you've never heard before, I'm guessing, some funny stuff. In fact, a little look into my world behind the scenes as I was sitting in this studio about an hour ago writing my notes up and doing my research for this show, I saw something that made me laugh so hard. And uh, I just sat here by myself laughing at, well, scientific studies? Yeah, it's a little weird. I'm a little weird, but I love doing this show and I love that you enjoy listening to it. So today's show is for everyone, whether you have diabetes or not, whether you have prediabetes or not, whether you even know what your A1C is or not, or if you even know what that means. If you've never monitored your blood glucose or you monitor it every day, this show is for you because heart disease and diabetes in this country are at epidemic levels and we need to do everything we can to understand why that is and reverse what is happening that is creating that epidemic. And that's what this show is all about. And uh, even if you're a thin person who doesn't uh, have blood sugar issues per se, there is some information in here that I think will be really, really helpful for you as well. So uh, we're just going to, we're going to do a big time dump of information today on Vitality Radio all about blood sugar, including what our friends at the Mayo Clinic have been saying ought to be done if you're concerned about diabetes. They give four big pieces of advice, and we're going to rant a little bit about that stuff, and we're going to talk a little bit about what it means to be a nonprofit hospital, and we're going to try to figure out if there really are any experts out there that you can trust. Now, remember that Vitality Radio is brought to you by Vitality Nutrition in Bountiful. If you're local to Utah, we'd love to have you visit us at 107 South 500 West. But if you're not that local, 
That's okay too, because we have a really great website that mostly works all the time. We've had a few little hiccups, but we're getting there called vitalitynutrition.com. And the experience there, most people say is very, very good. And uh, not only can you order product there, which we would have certainly love you to do, but you can also ask questions there. There's a chat feature where you usually end up chatting with me or my son, Bridger, and we're happy to help you out there. If you have questions, no matter where you are, you always can call and ask those questions at 801-292-6662. And now, let's start the Vital Rant. In a world full of often confusing messages about health, let Jared be your guide through the smoke screens of corporate greed, media bias, government ineptitude, and propaganda. When you see what is really happening, you'll be ranting too. It's time to expose the hidden agendas. It's time for the truth. It's time for the vital rant. The Mayo Clinic. M-A-Y-O. What do you think about when you think of the Mayo Clinic? I think most people think of the Mayo Clinic as one of the top medical centers in the world. It is where you go if your local doctor can't seem to figure out what's going on and you need better advice from a more skilled practitioner, I guess. Is that what you think of when you think of the Mayo Clinic? Well, according to whoever it is that ranks hospitals, including U.S. News and World Report, and I don't know if they have bias or not, but uh, regardless, the people that rank hospitals, they say the Mayo Clinic is the best. More often than not, they're number one ranked on all the different lists. And there are more than one. There's actually 13 different Mayo Clinics, but there are three major campuses. Uh, Minnesota is the headquarters of Mayo Clinic. And... uh, The reason I bring up Mayo Clinic is because as I was researching this topic of blood sugar and diabetes and what to do pharmaceutically, what to do lifestyle-wise, what to do with supplements, and all of that, I came across an article from the Mayo Clinic, which I often do. In fact, more often than not, I start with the Mayo Clinic or maybe WebMD or Cleveland Clinic. There are a few, but I like to start with Mayo Clinic because I think most people consider them to be an incredibly expert source on these things. So if Mayo Clinic is that great, then maybe the information on their side is all we really need to improve our situation when it comes to our health. But, uh, you know, it's interesting because a lot of people don't know a lot about Mayo Clinic other than it's supposed to be the best. So let's dig in just a little bit. Well, the Mayo Clinic is a nonprofit organization And that's good, right? Because, you know, we don't necessarily need people getting rich off of our health. That's definitely been a problem. But let's look at what nonprofit means in the Mayo Clinic sense of the term nonprofit. What are the numbers? Mayo reported the company earned more than $13.8 billion in 2019. That's money from everything from patient care to Mayo branded backpacks, which, by the way, you can get one for about 40 bucks on the Mayo Marketplace store. Out of that $13.8 billion, Mayo spent $12.8 billion. This means that Mayo's operating revenue in 2019 was $1 billion. If Mayo was a for-profit company, that would be a $1 billion profit that they would need to be then taxed on. 
But that's not all. There's more. On top of that, Mayo, like a lot of companies, earns money from investments, and that brought Mayo's total excess revenue to $2.28 billion in 2020. Or sorry, yeah, 2019. To put that in perspective, Mayo not only made more money than any other hospital in Minnesota, but they made more money than the whole state of Minnesota, which only made $1.5 billion. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly how $2.2 billion in the clear is not profit, but I'm not a CPA, that's for sure. The salary of the Mayo Clinic CEO, his name is uh, Gianrico Ferrugia. I hope I'm saying that right. I think I am. Increased by 45% from 1.9 or 1.2 million to in 2018 to 2.77 million in 2019. So in just one year, it doubled, uh, more than doubled, almost two and a half X, a little more than two and a half X as I look at the numbers. But uh, since revenue was up for the company due to a massive windfall called COVID uh, because revenues were up almost 20% during COVID. I think it's safe to assume that Ferrugia will get another sizable increase this year. After all, they should have two to $3 billion in nonprofit money to figure out what to do with. And Ferrugia isn't the only one profiting mightily from this nonprofit organization. There are at least 10 people at Mayo Clinic making well over a million dollars a year. Those are the ones I could find. Pediatricians at Mayo make nearly $300,000 a year. Psychiatrists can make as much as $400,000 a year. So nobody seems to be sacrificing much for the good of the patient here. But hey, maybe it's worth it. I'm at my root. I guess I'm a capitalist. I believe in the free market and think that people that are really good at what they do should make money for doing what they do. So Maybe it's okay for everyone to be paid handsomely if they're doing great work and saving lives. Oh, and disseminating valuable health information. So let's see. I often start, as I said, with the Mayo Clinic when I want to see what the gold standard of healthcare in this country is trying to educate us with. Because, you know, I'm an alternative minded guy, not so much in the alternative lifestyle front as I do like women, but more on the keep your damn drugs as far away from me as possible front. So as to be able to see both sides, I start with the drug side and then the unavoidable drug side effects. And then I share all of that with you while I tell you what I believe to be better, healthier and safer alternatives. Today, those alternatives are directed primarily at blood sugar, although we may talk a little bit about blood pressure as well. So let's start with our rich friends at the prestigious Mayo Clinic. The first bit of advice they give is one that I don't think very many people could disagree with, although it's a little confusing. Lose extra weight. Losing weight reduces the risk of diabetes, they say. People in one large study reduced their risk of developing diabetes by about 60% after losing approximately 7% of their body weight with changes in exercise and diet. The American Diabetes Association recommends that people with prediabetes lose at least 7-10% to of their body weight to prevent disease progression. More weight loss will translate to even greater benefits. So that part is the confusing part to me. They don't put a number on it or a BMI on it or a body fat percentage on it. They just say lose 7 to 10% of your body weight. What if you're a thin diabetic? You know, those people do exist. Uh, but, you know, 
confusing or not, I can't disagree that losing extra weight would be really, really good at preventing diabetes. In fact, it's pretty obvious that that would be good at preventing diabetes. They then also say that we should be more physically active, uh, that we should do aerobic exercise, aim for 30 minutes or more, uh, as they say, uh, or about 150 minutes a week. Uh, resistance exercise, they say two to three times a week. That's weightlifting, yoga, calisthenics, things like that. Limited inactivity, they say, and I like this one actually a lot. Breaking up long bouts of inactivity, such as sitting at the computer, can help control blood sugar levels. Take a few minutes to stand, walk around, and do some light activity every 30 minutes. I would add that I added a standing desk to my um, arsenal of things that might improve my health, I guess you could say. I'm always adding something. And uh, now when I'm prepping for Vitality Radio, I'm standing most of the time. I probably spend 75% standing and 25% sitting, and I kind of really like that. I don't know if it's improved my health yet, but uh, don't think it can hurt. Uh, as when I stand, I also tend to pace around when my hands aren't attached to the keyboard. So all of those things make a lot of sense. So far, so good. These Mayo Clinic people sound like they just might be legit when it comes to health advice. So what's number three? Well, number three is eat healthy plant foods. Plants provide vitamins, minerals, and carbohydrates in your diet, they say. Carbohydrates include sugars and starches, the energy sources for your body, and fiber. Dietary fiber, also known as roughage or bulk, is the part of the plant food that you don't digest or absorb. Fiber-rich foods promote weight loss and lower the risk of diabetes. Diabetes Eat a variety of healthy, fiber-rich foods, which include... Fruits such as tomatoes, peppers, and fruits from trees. Non-starchy veggies such as leafy greens, broccoli, and cauliflower. Legumes such as beans, chickpeas, and lentils. Whole grains such as whole wheat pasta and bread. Whole grain rice, whole oats, and quinoa. Okay, so here we have what appears to me to be maybe more opinion than anything actually scientific. Sure, there are studies that show the benefits of high fiber, and yes, fiber does slow down the blood sugar spike of the carbs and therefore reduces the glycemic impact, and all of that is useful when fighting diabetes. That being said, most of our fiber does come from high-carb foods, and carbs, for the most part, end up as glucose at some point in the body, and this requires insulin to process. So with good fiber comes glucose. And so it's a little bit of a mixed bag when you talk about those types of foods. And here's another thing I question. Just how much have the, I don't know, we'll say powers that be, the Bill Gateses of the world, the ones that want us to eat crickets for the rest of our lives, how many of those people are putting money into these clinics like Mayo Clinic, these wonderful nonprofits, to get them to push so hard on the plant-based diet? Have you noticed, like I have, that... It was just five or six years ago that suddenly everything was bragging on its packaging about being plant-based. And maybe 10, 12, 15 years ago, everything started bragging about being whole grain. And yet the more of that stuff that we eat in this country, the more indifference that blood sugar issues and blood pressure issues and heart disease seems to show towards those changes. So it is interesting, just wondering where the influence is coming from, because it seems to be more trend than scientific. 
Was there a landmark study? Did I miss it? Did I miss the big study that said if you eat plant-based versus eating really great, healthy, animal-based food, you know, the grass-fed stuff, the organic stuff, the actual good stuff, did that study show that plant-based was so much healthier? Because if it did, I'd love to read it and I'd love to share it with you, but I haven't seen that study. We'll talk about another study I haven't seen here in just a minute. So here what what we have here basically is a background that never seems to make it into WebMD or MayoClinic.com background information that's coming up, little studies that are being performed that are showing that animal-based diets, good, clean animal-based diets, like I said, the organic and grass-fed variety, that they have a significant reduction in inflammation and BMI and autoimmune disease, to name just a few potential benefits. And also, for what it's worth, whole grain rice and whole grain wheat are far more pro-inflammatory than they are anti-inflammatory, and diabetes is a heavily inflammatory disease, as is heart disease. So let's just say that this one is just influenced as much by opinion as it is by scientific fact, and that some of the scientific facts are being left behind during the stating of said opinion. And one more big thing on number three from Mayo Clinic. When is this study going to be done? The grass-fed beef versus corn-fed antibiotic-inflicted and hormone-injected beef versus plant-based diet study. When is that study going to be done? Because I haven't seen that study. The studies I have seen are hilariously, well, inconclusive. For instance, one study was done on Buddhists, about 3,000 of them. Buddhists in Taiwan, to be exact. These folks are typically what they call lacto-ovo vegetarians. That means they eat milk and other dairy products and they eat eggs, but they don't generally eat animals themselves. But not all of them eat milk and eggs. So they studied these folks for about five years and they asked them periodically to remember what they ate during those five years. And here are the results, and they're impressive. Consistent vegetarian diet was associated with 35% lower hazards, while converting from a non-vegetarian to a vegetarian pattern was associated with 53% lower hazards. For diabetes, comparing with non-vegetarians while adjusting for age, gender, education, physical activity, family history of diabetes, follow-up methods, use of lipid-lowering medications, and baseline BMI. So basically, it sounds like a big win for vegetarians. Somewhere between 35% lower risk, all the way up to 53% lower risk by being all the way vegetarian versus just being lacto-ovo vegetarian. But these Taiwanese Buddhists, what kind of milk are they drinking? And where are they getting their eggs? Because I did a little research on that, and there's no way to verify that this applies to this study, but just generally what is consumed in Taiwan. We're not talking about Tibetan monks here. We're talking about like regular everyday people in Taiwan that were studied, and they drink the same kind of milk that we do, and they eat the same kind of eggs that we do over here. Heavily processed, pasteurized, homogenized, um, and not organic milk and eggs. And I will tell you that 
that type of milk and those type of eggs, they are not good for the human body. In fact, especially on the dairy side, I believe they are quite harmful to the human body. So, of course, by comparison, taking these gross fake whole foods out would improve the outcome. I would rather see you eat a plant-based diet without all of that toxic dairy product mixed in than a plant-based diet with a heavy portion of dairy and not-so-hot eggs mixed in. Alternatively, when comparing a plant-based diet in a separate study where they put plants versus animal-based diets, where 30% of the diet was protein and on both sides, the results were, well, identical. Nobody won, plant-based or animal-based. The results were almost exactly the same. But was it a healthy animal-based diet? Did they eat grass-fed beef, raw milk, real eggs? Nope. It was the same sad, standard American diet that most of us eat over here. So then, what do we believe? Well, like I said, let's see the real studies. The ones done on real people eating real food on one side and real food on the other. One eating plant-based and one eating animal-based, both eating clean. What does that study look like? Okay, so let's move on to the fourth suggestion from our wealthy, pharma-loving Mayo Clinic friends. The fourth suggestion is my favorite because this is what I've noticed with Mayo Clinic. It's what I've noticed with WebMD. It's what I've noticed with Harvard Medical. It's what I've noticed with Cedars-Sinai. I've noticed it with all of these guys. I mean, all of these guys say the same stuff, which is, is interesting to me because, well... There's rankings that say some are better than others, but boy, do they sound the same on paper. But regardless, this is what I've noticed. I'll read these articles and it'll start out strong. Hey, walk more, do more exercise. Don't sit on your butt all day long. That will be good for you. Yes, I agree, Mayo Clinic. And then as it goes... From recommendation to recommendation, it seems to get worse and worse. Now, sometimes they'll start off with a really bad recommendation. But in this article, they kept the suspense. I had to read all the way to number four to find something so ludicrous that I could include it on Vitality Radio. So what's that? Eat healthy fats. Fatty foods are high in calories and should be taken in moderation, they say. To help lose and manage weight, your diet should include a variety of foods with unsaturated fats, sometimes called good fats. Doesn't that sound good and healthy? Unsaturated fats, both monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fats, promote healthy blood cholesterol levels and good heart and vascular health. Sources of these good fats include, listen to this, this is really important. This is what the Mayo Clinic thinks you should eat to be healthier and get your good fats in and prevent your diabetes from happening. Olive oil sunflower oil, safflower oil, cottonseed oil, and canola oils. They also suggest nuts and seeds rich in omega-6 fatty acids such as almonds, peanuts, flaxseed, and pumpkin seeds, and fatty fish such as salmon, mackerel, sardines, tuna, and cod. 
they also warn with a stern warning. I can almost feel the finger wagging happening. Saturated fats, the bad fats, are found in dairy products and meats. These should be a small part of your diet. You can limit saturated fats by eating low-fat dairy products and lean chicken and pork. Okay, so what's wrong with number four? Healthy fats? Let's take a look at the dictionary just to make sure Mayo Clinic and Jared are looking at the same definition for what healthy means. Well, healthy actually has several definitions, like many words in the dictionary. And one of those definitions is one that the Mayo Clinic really understands, certainly better than I do, and probably better than you as well. That definition is making a healthy profit, which is interesting for a nonprofit organization, but I digress. Let's move to the definition I think they were referring to, and that's the one that says it's good for one's health. So, how does one reconcile this definition of healthy with the recommendation of cottonseed and canola oil, safflower or sunflower oil, peanuts, fish that we know are loaded with mercury and PCBs? Remember, omega-6 fats, particularly the ones from ultra-processed, shelf-stable nut and seed oils, are devastating to your health. We know that that is true. They offset the balance of omega-3 to omega-6, which increases inflammation. Diabetes is literally diagnosed by your A1C levels. That is an inflammatory marker. So yeah, Mayo Clinic, let's increase inflammation by eating fake healthy oils and reducing what? Oh, right, right. Reduce those bad fats like red meat and dairy. I will say this. I'll say this. If my name was Mayo, I guess I'd feel compelled to stand up for those fats that most thing most Mayo is made from. You know, safflower oil, sunflower oil, rapeseed, otherwise known as canola oil, soybean oil, you know, those kind of fats. I'd probably feel compelled because Mayo is made from those fats. And the fathead that wrote this article is clearly eating those fats because he doesn't have enough omega-3 to fuel the gray matter in his brain to tell the truth. It is confusing. Diet is confusing. Why? Because everybody has an opinion. And now I'm going to give you mine. Clean, real, whole food, such as raw milk, and grass-fed beef are incredible for the human body. When we consume it the way God intended it, we get what was intended for us. Yes, factory-farmed beef and pasteurized, homogenized, hormone-laden, antibiotic-fueled milk is not good for you. But these con artists never differentiate between the two. They don't even mention that we know these so-called healthy fats lead to cancer and heart disease. Oh, and the diabetes that they just told us that they prevent. They don't talk at all about the studies from the 1960s that vilified saturated fat and how those have been proven to be absolutely wrong, but not just wrong, but also doctored and manipulated to show results that just simply weren't true. So maybe one day the Mayo Clinic people will start telling the whole truth about health. But then again, 
these people joined the chorus during the last two years in giving inexcusably bad advice that led to more death and disease, not less. It is indeed interesting to me because on the one hand, they were handing out really horrible health advice, while with the other hand, they were putting 18.2% more money in their pockets, precisely because of that same unhealthy advice. Trust the experts, right? Okay, rant over. Let's move on to advice that I think is actually useful. Remembering, of course, that I'm not a doctor. I don't make three or $400,000 working at Mayo Clinic and being ranked the top in my field because of trumpeting the usual stuff that comes from NIH or FDA or CDC. I'm a lowly health food store owner with a podcast. I don't want to be your doctor, and I'm not. So you can't take anything I say as medical advice. You just can't. You can't legally, well, I can't legally tell you to, and I don't want to. As I've said on Vitality Radio so many times, I don't think I can count that high. This show is for educational purposes. This show is designed to hopefully open up some eyeballs to some things that haven't been seen before. This show is about alternatives to pharma, drugs, to procedures that are oftentimes premature, if not completely unnecessary, and to bogus propagandic information, or should I say disinformation, since that's a popular word surrounding shows like this lately, when it comes to our health. This show is designed to just simply give you an alternative viewpoint. What you do with that is 100% up to you, and I highly recommend that you don't just take it from me. All right, let's talk about lifestyle tips when it comes to blood sugar. I'm going to give you a couple that I think are so valuable. I've included them on some other shows, and maybe you've already heard them, but maybe you're not doing them yet. I want to give you a couple of things that don't really directly have clinical research showing that they benefit you when it comes to diabetes specifically, and then I'm going to give you a whole bunch of ones that do. The first two that are incredibly near and dear to my heart are these. The first is breathe before meals. Now, that might sound pretty intuitive, (laughs) but I'll explain what I mean. And the second one is just like your mother told you, chew your food, honey. Okay, breathe before meals. This is the deal. We live in America, and America is one heck of a fast-paced society. I don't know of anybody that stays a whole lot busier than I do, so I get it. Boy, do I get it. And I also get that I forget to do this a lot more often than I actually do this. But when I do this, I love it. So this is what I want to challenge you to do. Next time you sit down to eat, I'm not talking about in your car, although you could do this if you just went through a drive through You could do this. But I'm talking about next time you sit down to eat, whether it's solo or with your family or your office mates or whoever you're eating with that particular meal. I want you to take 30 seconds to one minute for yourself 
And I want you to sit there. And if it's not too awkward, close your eyes and breathe. You can do the four, seven, eight technique. That's a great one where you breathe in for four seconds. You hold it for seven seconds and you breathe out for eight seconds. Do that two or three times. It won't take more than a minute. And then if you prefer, you can also do the physiological sigh or the straw breath, which is inherent and built into all of us. It's an innate feature that we were given by, I believe, our creator. And that is when you do what you would do when you were a kid and you just were wrapping up a fit. You'd been crying because you scraped your knee or somebody hurt your feelings or whatever, and now you're calming down and you're doing this. You can do that two times, three times, ten times if you want. But when you do that, it shifts you from fight or flight to rest and digest. And when you get to rest and digest, guess what happens to your food? Well, it digests a lot more effectively. We don't want to eat when we are feeling stress. When we are feeling stress, we can't digest our food efficiently at all. And many of us are eating under that circumstance most of our meals. We're in a rush to get somewhere. We stop at a drive-thru and we eat as fast as we can because we recognize that stopping at the drive-thru made us even later than we already were. Or we only have an hour for lunch. It took 15 minutes to get to the restaurant, and it's going to take 15 minutes to get back, and we've got to eat quick. Or our son or our daughter has a baseball game that night, and we got to get everybody fed before 6 o'clock so we can head over there. You get the point. It happens all the time. And sometimes we're rushing to eat just because we need to eat and not because it's this nourishing food for our bodies. But if we take the moment to breathe and if we teach our children to do the same, heck, if you're someone who prays over your meals, make it part of that. In fact, I think praying over your meal is one way to get out of that fight or flight stressed response as well. You can do it a lot of different ways, but if you're feeling anxious and you're feeling stressed when you're putting the bites in your mouth, your digestion will pay the price and that will impact your metabolism and that can lead to worse issues with insulin resistance and therefore eventually things like diabetes. Chewing your food, same thing, different reason. You're slowing it down because you're spending more time chewing your food. You only have teeth in one part of your body assuming you still have teeth and so if you do, they're in your mouth, right? And that's the best thing that we've been given to break our food apart is teeth. They're like little scissors, right? And little grinders. And we can get our food macerated down to a level that it's much easier to digest. And it slows everything down, which also takes the stress feeling down with it. Now, for diabetes specifically, for blood sugar specifically, and I talked about this in one of my 10 free or cheap things you can do right now to improve your health episodes, you got to walk after meals if you can. If you're really struggling with this, walk after meals. If you're someone who is going to grab lunch, um, you know, at, you're at the office and you're going to grab lunch and you can, you've got time, walk to and from the restaurant. That'd be great. 
if you are someone who eats dinner and you can make it work, which I know you can because most people in this country are eating dinner and then watching TV, take 30 minutes of that TV watching time, flip on a podcast. I prefer Vitality Radio, but you could put on any podcast if you want, and then you can go for a walk. Because when you walk after your meals, it does wonders for your blood sugar. It is truly phenomenal, and they've shown that it can be as effective as pharmaceuticals for this purpose. Okay, the next item is a challenge I gave myself that I've been doing, and it's changed my health trajectory, I believe, maybe as much as almost anything I've ever done. And it's something I've never shared on this show before, and I don't know why. So today's a good day to do it. It's only almost my 300th episode, (laughs) so let's get it out there. When you pick up food at the grocery store, when you look at the menu at a restaurant, when you're at a friend's house and they've got a little smorgasbord before the game, every time before you pick up that food, just ask yourself one question. Does this food serve my health? It's a really simple question, and frankly, the answer is often a real downer because Halloween just happened, and I had to ask myself that question a lot of times because there were a lot of little packages of candy rolling around all over the place in everybody's house that I ever went to and in stores and restaurants and all the places there was all this stuff and I had to ask myself every time, does this serve your health, Jared? And if it didn't, guess what? Sometimes I ate it anyway. I did. But I'll tell you what's happened as I've done this more and more frequently because I don't always ask the question. I sometimes forget Sometimes I neglect it probably because I don't want to hear the answer. Have you ever done that? Yeah, I think that's kind of a human thing. But I'll tell you, when I ask, more often than not, if it doesn't, it doesn't go in my mouth. And I don't even miss it. Because I don't miss it because I already asked myself that question and I knew the answer to the question before I asked it. And it felt better not to put it in my mouth. And it made it easier to make a better choice that was far more likely to serve my health. So ask yourself that question. It's a daring question to ask because when you look at most of the food that is presented before us, no matter where you go in this country, the answer is a resounding no. It is not serving your health. And yet, we've been blessed with so many amazing things that do. Ask yourself the question. Eat grass-fed beef. Now, I'm not a proponent of the carnivore diet. I've seen it heal people from horrible, debilitating disease, and I don't think that it is a bad thing for that purpose for many people. But I don't think it's a long-term answer for most people, at least based on what I've seen. I do think that you can do it right and you can do it healthy, but that's not what this is about. This is about just basics. Just eat grass-fed beef instead of the other crap. If you're going to eat beef, don't eat the stuff that isn't grass-fed organic or better yet, from a local farm, a local ranch where you know the people who raise the animals and you know they're eating the animals that they raise as well. That is healthy food. Eat wild-caught Alaskan salmon. Why Alaskan and not Atlantic? Well, because Alaskan salmon comes from pretty darn clean water still. 
Those guys up there, they got it good as far as pollution compared to the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans. And so the Alaskan salmon is better. It's a much, much better, cleaner source, and it's loaded with omega-3, which what? Anti-inflammatory, and when it's anti-inflammatory, it's actually anti-heart disease and it's anti-diabetes. Eat real, free-range, organic eggs. Uh, I love Jerry's. They make great stuff. I love Vital Farms. I love the eggs that my little guy Xander raises and gives to me uh, from his chickens that he loves so much. These are food that were intended to serve our health, not the conventional eggs in the carton for a couple of bucks at the grocery store that are raised on horrible, toxic food in horrible, toxic environments. Get those eggs out of here. Okay, how about real food fats? Real food fats are fats that, you know, don't have to be processed so heavily to make them even usable, like Oh, well, all the oils, just about, <laughs> that our friends at the Mayo Clinic recommended. Uh, yeah, so we're talking about things like organic or grass-fed butter. The Kerry Gold is a great option if you can't find organic locally. In fact, in some cases, it may even be better than the organic. Uh, and, it, oh, my gosh, it's delicious. Tallow. Tallow comes from beef. If you're not aware of it, read up on it. It's pretty interesting stuff. Coconut oil, extra virgin coconut oil and extra virgin oil virgin olive oil. Do a little research on the olive oil. Make sure you get a brand that you can trust. These are fats that will benefit your body. And of course, ditch the Mayo Clinic so-called healthy fats. Cottonseed, canola, peanut, soybean, corn, vegetable, safflower, sunflower. All of these oils will make you less healthy and make you more sick. And I simply don't care what the propagandists say about it. It's true. We have lots and lots of evidence of this fact. And then exercise beyond walking after meals, weight training exercise, movement throughout the day. These things matter. And that's where Mayo Clinic got it right. And then here's one you may not know about. Now you hear this from me all the time, but you don't hear it in regards to blood sugar. So let's talk about it. Sunlight. Vitamin D levels are directly associated with lower diabetes risk, and it's not a small lower risk. In fact, get this. Remember the Buddhist study I talked about during the rant when I said that it was about a 30 to 50% lower odds of diabetes in those people who were eating vegetarian versus eating filthy eggs and milk and vegetables? Well, guess what? Higher levels of vitamin D, levels above 50 are associated with about a 30% less risk of diabetes. Just vitamin D? Yeah, that's a big deal, not something to be, uh, you know, just swept under the rug. So get your vitamin D where it needs to be supplemented if you need to, especially this time of year, but get it from the sun whenever you can. And then consider intermittent fasting. 16-8 is a good place to start. That's where you eat for eight hours out of the day and you don't eat for 16 hours out of the day. And I'm not going to talk about intermittent fasting in detail on this show, but I am going to do a show in detail on intermittent fasting. It's on the list. I don't know when it'll happen, but it'll happen in the next you know, couple of months or so, I'm guessing. Uh, so 
look into intermittent fasting. Many people have had really good success with it, but you do have to be cautious with that if you already have blood sugar problems, uh, because uh, it can be a significant shift and a bit of a jolt. So watch it uh, when you do it and maybe talk to your physician before you start. Supplements. Let's talk about a couple of supplements that have really kind of shockingly amazing results when it comes to blood sugar. And we'll also talk a little bit about metformin, which is usually the drug that pre-diabetics and diabetics are put on first. The first supplement I'll talk about, and if you want to hear all of this and, and hear the lipid, the blood lipid uh, benefits of, of uh, berberine, as well as the blood pressure benefits of berberine, well, then you are going to want to listen to episode 227 to find those. But this is a snippet from that show when it comes to A1C and blood sugar issues specifically. In one study of 116 diabetic patients, one gram of berberine per day, that would be two capsules, by the way, of my favorite berberine, which is made by Natural Factors. I, th I think it's the best one on the market. I really love their product. One gram of that berberine per day lowered fasting blood sugar by 20% from 126 to 101, or from diabetic to normal. One gram a day from diabetic to normal levels. It also lowered A1C by 12%. That's a marker for long-term blood sugar levels and also improved blood lipids like cholesterol and triglycerides. A lot of people get confused about these numbers, so let's talk about A1C specifically. For people without diabetes, the normal range for hemoglobin A1C uh, which is often shown as HA1C on your blood test, if you've got a blood test you're looking at, is between 4% and 5.6%. That would be considered, quote unquote, normal. Hemoglobin A1C levels between 5.7% and 6.4% mean you have a higher chance of getting diabetes. In other words, pre-diabetic. And levels of 6.5% or higher simply mean you've got diabetes. Most diabetics are in that 7-ish range. And uh, so those are the numbers, 4% um, on the low end, 7, 8, or actually a lot higher on the higher end. But this is important. According to the studies that have been done on berberine and A1C, and these studies range anywhere from about 900 milligrams up to about 1,500 milligrams. So again, two capsules up to about three capsules per day. What they have found is stunning. That percentage change is dramatic because if you are someone who has a 6.5, which is the baseline for a diabetic diagnosis, if you're at 6.5% on your A1C, then berberine will, could shift it down to 5.7. Now that's stunning because 5.7 is the beginning of the pre-diabetic level. So you go from diabetic to almost not even pre-diabetic just by taking berberine in many, many cases. And I've seen this happen with a lot of people. It's really fascinating stuff. According to a big review of 14 different studies where they took a meta-analysis, basically, of these 14 studies, berberine is as effective as oral diabetes drugs, including metformin, glipizide, and I always get this one wrong, rosic Glitazone, rosaglitazone, we'll say. It works very well with lifestyle modifications and also has additive, or sorry, added benefits uh, when 
administered with other blood sugar-lowering drugs, meaning you can use it with metformin if you choose to, and it works even better, but you can also use it on its own. And in many cases, it will perform as well or better than metformin. So those are some of the highlights of the individual studies and one meta-analysis, but another major meta-analysis looked at 27 different studies, randomized controlled clinical trials uh, with over about 2,600 patients. There are seven subgroups in this meta-analysis, berberine versus placebo or berberine with intensive lifestyle intervention versus intensive lifestyle intervention alone, berberine combined with oral hypoglycemic versus hypoglycemic alone, and so on and so on and so on. There were a whole bunch of different ones that they looked at, but they were all done on treating type 2 diabetes mellitus and this is what they found. Berberine with lifestyle intervention, that would be, you know, walking after meals, things like that. Uh, well, compared to placebo, the change was dramatic on fasting glucose, on post-meal glucose, and on A1C. And then compared to metformin and glucophage, it was pretty much identical, just as effective as the drugs. And this is a big deal because metformin is a long-term use drug, most likely lifelong. As with all drugs, it has side effects, but recently some newer and scarier potential side effects have crept up because it blocks B12 absorption, which causes anemia and can cause nerve damage, leading to neuropathy, which is already a major concern with diabetes. More concerning, though, is that metformin has been linked to dementia, in a large-scale study, over 12 years done in Taiwan, individuals who took metformin had significantly higher incidences of Parkinson's and dementia. In fact, the incidence increased with higher doses and longer use. One of the most alarming things is that these increases started at just 300 days in continuous use. That's less than a year, and most people are on metformin for decades. The FDA doesn't talk about berberine. Your doctor doesn't talk about berberine. Mayo Clinic doesn't talk about berberine, but the studies are incredibly clear. Berberine is incredible for blood sugar and should be considered as a first line of defense in my non-medical opinion. And what about another supplement that sort of got hot for a long time because it was really tied to a lot of weight loss stuff and everybody gets excited about weight loss, but then it sort of fell off a little bit and diabetics could benefit so much from this and yet very, very few of the diabetics I talk to are actually using it. It's called chromium or GTF chromium and specifically chromium chelate is the form that I prefer above chromium picolinate or some of the other forms. Listen to these numbers. The FDA's reference daily intake for chromium is 120 micrograms per day. That's the RDA. Over 90% of typical American diets provide less than 50 micrograms. That puts you about 60% deficient, according to FDA. And Americans, on average, consume only 25 to 35 micrograms of chromium per day, which means you're only at about 25% of the RDA. Due to low chromium in common chromium-containing foods, meaning it's been kind of pulled out of our soil, uh, eggs, bread, milk, tuna, apples, oranges, rice, lettuce, tomatoes, you would need about 10,000 calories a day worth of these vegetables and foods to get that 120 micrograms of chromium. So it's nearly impossible to get from your diet. 
In Biological Trace Elements Research Journal, the research actually stated that glucose intolerance related to insufficient chromium appears to be widespread. Improved chromium nutrition leads to improved sugar metabolism in hyperglycemics, hypoglycemics, and diabetics. And the hallmark sign of chromium deficiency is indeed impaired glucose tolerance. This means that the most common finding with low chromium is sugar intolerance, which leads to weight gain for some sugar or high sugar levels, both resting or fasting sugar, as well as post-meal sugar, pre-diabetes, high blood insulin, and or type 2 diabetes. Other researchers in 1998, we're talking, you know, 25 years ago now, included concluded that chromium had benefits without known side effects in people with glucose intolerance and diabetes, improving blood sugars, cholesterol, and H, or sorry, A1C levels. The Journal of Psychiatric Practice in 2005 studied a dose of 600 micrograms of chromium in patients with atypical depression, most of whom were overweight. They found that chromium reduced appetite, improved carbohydrate cravings, lowered overall eating, and coincidentally, that low sex drive actually improved. These are all common symptoms of depression, so all symptoms were of interest to the researchers. But the bottom line is that if you have experienced stress or some depression symptoms and weight gain, chromium may also work for you in that department. In 2008, Diabetes Technology and Therapeutics reported that 1,000 micrograms daily of chromium reduced food intake, hunger levels, fat cravings, suggesting that chromium helps regulate food intake through appetite control in the brain. In fact, patients taking chromium automatically reduced food intake by 207 calories per day simply because of decreased cravings for carbohydrates and sweets. And on top of all of that, chromium is cheap and chromium is safe, two things that can't be said about the pharma options. Do you know to get my favorite GTF chromium at 500 micrograms per tablet, you can get a month's supply. That's three per day. That's what I recommend. For $7? Yeah, 7 bucks for a month's supply. It's crazy. It's very, very inexpensive. And if we want to tack berberine onto that, because frankly, I'd take berberine over chromium if I was choosing only one, but both are just phenomenal together. You're looking at like 35 bucks a month-ish for both of those drugs that pack a truly phenomenal punch for blood pressure and blood sugar and weight loss and overall heart health, and even food cravings. So there are there is the list. That's my list, and it's not Mayo Clinic's list. It's a little bit different. Some of it's the same. Some of it is exactly the opposite, but that's my list. Again, I'm not your doctor. I'm just a guy disseminating this information who you can decide if you want to believe or not, but I would recommend believing me based on researching what I say and see if you can come to similar conclusions that feel right to you. This is not medical advice. This is information that I hope was super valuable to you, and I would love to hear your feedback in any of the places. You can join our Vitality Radio Facebook community. The link is in the description. You can hit me up on Instagram 
at Vitality Nutrition Bountiful or at Vitality Radio or the good places to find me there. You can check us out at VitalityNutrition.com and even open up a chat there, or you can call us at 801-292-6662. I hope this was helpful to you. I had a great time delivering this information to you, researching it, and I learned a few things that I didn't already know that will improve my health journey. Thank you for affording me that opportunity. I never thank you the one listening to this show for affording me the opportunity to educate myself deeper and deeper every time I make an attempt to help educate you. Thank you for that. It means everything to me. I appreciate every single ear that gives this show a listen, and I appreciate even more those who are willing to share it with friends and family and get the information out there that I so desperately want to share. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Jared St. Clair, and this has been Vitality Radio. been listening to the vitality radio podcast enjoy your week in the meantime jared will be feverishly searching for the latest nutrition info to educate you on and wading into mounds of propaganda to help steer you through it vitality radio is researched and written by jared st Clair. our awesome music is by brian bob young support vitality radio by subscribing and giving us a five-star review on apple podcasts youtube or your favorite podcast source Don't forget to follow us at Vitality Radio on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Please let us know your thoughts about this episode by using the hashtag Vitality Radio Podcast. And if you like what you hear, go tell somebody with a share, a screenshot, or an airdrop. Thank you. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only. The FDA has not evaluated this podcast. This podcast is provided with the understanding that information shared is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This podcast is not a substitute for care by a medical professional. Thank you.